0: My name is John Hartley. I'm chair of the Economic Club of Miami. Um, We got started um, just over a year ago. And I I know a number of you have been to our events so far. Um, We just had an event last month with uh, Ken Griffin and Mayor Francis Suarez, um, which was uh, a very popular and and well-attended event. Um, I'm the uh, chair of the Economic Club of of Miami. And uh, as as, um, that would suggest, um, we are a membership organization. Those of you who are not members here Um, we highly encourage you to come to our website, um, GetOnClubMiami.org, and uh, to check out um, some of our programming and um, uh, what's involved with uh, completing a membership application uh, and saying that uh, to us. Um, Without any further ado, I have the uh, pleasure today, uh, the very special pleasure of introducing and interviewing Rob Arnott. Rob is the founder and chairman of the Board of Research Affiliates, an asset management firm. Research affiliates develops investment strategies uh, for other firms, like uh, the the famous uh, research affiliate uh, uh, fundamental indices um, that are uh, value tilted uh, indices. Um, and research affiliates um, over uh, oversees 166 billion in asset under management um, using um, uh, their uh, their strategies, which uh, are in their indices, which other asset managers uh, manage to. Um, In addition, uh, Rob has also served as a visiting professor of finance at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. Uh, He's also on the editorial board of of several um, uh, finance uh, journals, including the Journal of Portfolio Management. He's also served on the product advisory boards of the Chicago uh, Mercantile Exchange, the Chicago Board Options Exchange, and to say the least, Rob is one of the most uh, prominent quantitative investors in the world, and I say this having worked in, in quantitative asset management for quite some time. Thank you so much Rob for joining us.
1: Thank you. All right, so I think
0: we'll just dive into it here. Um, So let's get into inflation here. Um, What has the Fed been missing here? Um, What have policy been makers been missing? How do you think inflation um, came about?
1: Well, inflation is just a matter of supply and demand. Um, If the supply of goods and services is constricted, Uh, and demand for goods and services is elevated, you're gonna get inflation. It's really that simple. And during the pandemic, of course, we had lockdowns. Uh, Many people continue to work from home. Many of those who work from home uh, continue to pretend to work from home, meaning supply of goods and services is diminished. Uh, Supply chain disruptions are widespread. Uh, No real light at the end of the tunnel for that. Uh, and in addition to all of that, um, money's been helicoptered into people's bank accounts, creating a, a step up in, in demand, and <clears throat> we're at full employment, so stimulus checks really shouldn't be needed. But uh, uh, anytime you have uh, uh, aggressively stimulative fiscal and monetary policy, and exogenous shocks that reduce supply, you're going to have inflation. Uh, I was shocked when Jerome Powell coined the expression transitory inflation back, I believe it was April of 2021. Uh, Inflation was already 4%. And half of that inflation had happened in just three months, so that it was 4%. Over a year, eight annualized over three months, and he says transitory. Uh, I wondered what he'd been smoking. Um, the eleven uh, in November, he decided to retire the term transitory, although they still talk about it as if it's transitory. Um, and at that point, it was already six percent. So. One of the things I found just fascinating was in December of 2021, with inflation already above 6%, uh, the Fed dot plot, which shows what Fed governors believe the Fed funds rate should be at year end, end of the next year, end of the next year, and as a permanent equilibrium. Uh, the forecast then was that Fed governors thought that inflation, that uh, Fed funds rate should be 0.8%. That was last December. They were saying 0.8% for this year, and, this and inflation, inflation was, was already like over 6% percent at that point. It was already over 6 I It might have been 7 by then. Um, it's astounding how far behind the curve they are. And uh, I'm fascinated at the obsession with listening to their forecast for the macroeconomy or for inflation when their track record is unbelievably bad.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's fascinating uh, just how quickly uh, the Fed has uh, pivoted, um, you know just uh, beginning uh, somewhat later this year uh, in in around March when they when they started tightening, mm-hmm. and they've tightened very very quickly. So it's, it seems like a very about face from the Fed of, of 2021 right. that was very uh, uh, resistant to, uh, to to start increasing rates um, amidst what what seemingly became entrenched inflation after October when. Became it was more than uh, just a story about used car prices going up, but really also about housing, and which is you know 30, 40 percent or so of, uh, of the CPI basket. I'm curious, sort um, pivoting this um, a, a little bit to you know forecasting and, and capital markets. Like, how long, um, you know, how do you think uh, sustained inflation in this five to 10 percent range over the next two to three years? How does that, uh, in your mind, affect the economy and capital markets?
1: Let me break that into two questions. 5 to 10% over the next several years um, uh, is inflation that's not transitory. We did a study, we published it about a month ago, in which we uh, took the 14 OECD countries that have been developed economies for the last 50 years. I mean, there's a lot of newcomers. Leave those out, they're not our peer group. focus on the ones that have been developed economies going back to 1970, and we then asked the question, how how transitory is inflation? What we found was that if you get 4% inflation, um, half the time it's transitory, which it, by our definition means it gets, goes below 2% within two years. Um, half the time it's not. So basically when you get a an exogenous shock that creates a small burst of inflation, uh, then as soon as the shock passes, so does the inflation, which is great. When it goes above 6%, um, you start to have more daunting odds. Uh, Only about 30% of the time is inflation transitory above 6%. Only about 15% of the time above 8%, less than 10% above 10% or higher. And this is based on surprisingly large numbers of cases because we're looking at 14 economies spanning 60 years. And uh, what we find is that there have been 28 times that one of these economies has seen inflation above 8%. Now, eight of those 28 are underway right now, so we don't know how they're gonna play out. The other 20, only two came back down in reasonably short order. 18 lingered for anywhere from two and a half to 26 and a half years. Median of 13 years. So this is not to say we're forecasting a long bout of inflation. What it is to say is anyone who uses transitory return to normal within two years as their central expectation is being very naive. That That is well within the realm of possibility. That's the optimal best quintile. The worst quintile is 10 years and beyond. Oh, uh, back to the second part of the question, what does this mean for investments? Right now, break-even inflation, which is the difference between the TIPS yield and the treasury bond yield, stands at 2.3% for 10 years. What that means is that if inflation is less than 2.3%, you're better off holding treasuries. If it's more than 2.3%, you're better off holding tips. So one immediate takeaway that's very simple is, do you really believe it's gonna be 2.3% from now for the next 10 years? Or do you believe it'll go seven, six, five, four, three? Our forecast is 4% inflation for the decade, 5% inflation for five years. And uh, if you get 4%, then TIPS will produce 1.7% more return per annum, working out to 17% more wealth after 10 years than if you used Treasury bonds. That, to me, is a slam dunk. That's a uh, simple strategic bet that, for the patient
0: investor, should work out beautifully. in your mind, likely uh, entrenched inflation or, or potential, uh, good potential for uh, entrenched inflation averaging about 4% over the next 10 years. I'm curious, in, in sort of pivoting to, to investing specifically here, what, af- what asset classes do you think investors should uh, consider uh, to help them um, uh, amidst this sort of sustained, potentially sustained period of inflation? Uh, in the coming years? I know some people talk about I-bonds, there's sort of a 10,000 limit per person on that, so you can't really scale that up, but things like uh, tips or treasury inflation protected securities, real estate, short-term interest rates. I mean, what what asset classes do you think should be part of an investor's portfolio in this new era of inflation?
1: Well, um, I've been called a perma bear uh, for the simple reason that I don't building things that are fully priced or expensive. Uh, I like holding things that are cheap. And uh, that created some difficulty in the late 2010s because value was um, uh, having its worst drawdown ever. But viewed within equities, uh, the spread between growth and value is still the largest uh, quintile of spread ever. It's no longer the largest percentile as it was in the summer of 2020, but the largest quintile. That's pretty good. So for starters, if you're going to hold stocks, hold value stocks. If you're going to hold stocks, uh, don't be focused on US uh, US trading at uh, Shiller PE ratio, price relative to 10-year smooth earnings of thirty. That's the CAPE ratio? That's the CAPE ratio. Uh, where was it at the peak in 2007 and eight? It was 28 times. So it, it took a uh, uh, six-year bull market to get to 28 times back in the mid-2000s. Uh, mid and it's taken a bear market to get it down to 30 now. Now, what about Europe? Europe's at uh, 14 times, EFA's at 15 times, emerging markets are at 14 times. They're half off. Are their prospects for growth worse than the US? Of course they are. Prices are set based on narratives, and those narratives have the wonderful advantage of usually being true. They also have the, the daunting disadvantage of being utterly useless because they're already reflected in share prices. So you want to figure out where the narrative may be exaggerated or may have room to change. The 2.3 breakeven inflation rate is a beautiful example. The notion that uh, EFA and emerging markets deserve to be half off relative to the US is one where there's ample room for change. Uh, emerging markets, local currency debt, currently yields more than US junk bonds. And the default rate historically is much, much lower. So there are pockets of opportunity out there. And the backdrop on all of this is uh, the inflation surge. Inflation is wonderful for value. If you go back historically and look at decades over the last 100 years, anytime you had inflation above 4% for a decade, Value beat growth by 6 to 10 percentage points per annum during those decades. Why should that be? Very, very simple. Uh, uh, Firstly, high inflation usually means a higher discount rate. Higher discount rate hurts growth relative to value because most of the value in owning a growth stock is the distant future. And that distant future becomes less valuable with a high discount rate. Secondly, there is absolutely no such thing as high but stable inflation. It doesn't exist. Which means that if you have elevated and turbulent inflation, you have uh, elevated economic uncertainty. Isn't isn't it nice if you're in a period of elevated uncertainty to have a low P.E. ratio, low price to sales ratio, and so forth? So a foundation of underlying fundamentals that can sustain the value of the assets so there's a this is an opportunity rich environment it's just not the opportunities people are mostly looking at
0: well, that, that's good to know so value stocks so high like high uh, high book to value uh, type you know, Warren Buffett type investing works well in uh, historically has worked well in these sorts of inflationary environments exactly. it's very uh, very helpful and good to know um, so I guess Jumping a little bit deeper into um, macroeconomics and, and macroeconomic narratives, um, which you're alluding to, I'm, I'm curious like, how should investors think about uh, things like rising deficits, uh, national debt, aging demographics? <coughs> you know, in the sort of post-COVID world, um, this has become uh, seemingly a, a very uh, a very important issues um, when thinking about whether it's inflation, or thinking about um, uh, capital market returns in general, how do you think um, these issues are gonna weigh on uh, both um, figures like GDP as well as long-term real returns?
1: Um, I wrote a paper in 2009 called The 3D Hurricane, uh, the Interconnected Influence of Deficits, Debt and Demographics. And the point of the paper wasn't that any of these play out fast but that they represent a strong current um, going through the macro economy. If you're wanting to swim across the Mississippi River, it's useful to know which direction the water is flowing uh, in order to uh, not wind up too many miles downstream. The, um, the same applies for things like deficit spending. Uh, uh, John Malden likes to say there's a bang moment when uh, Things go along just fine, and then bang—you uh, suddenly realize um, your wily e. coyote um, running off of a cliff—and uh, uh, that kind of situation uh, uh, happens again and again in macroeconomy. Deficits, of course, create debt, and the debt burden of the U.S. Uh, interesting if you think of the country as an individual family if is a hundred thousand and if they have debt of five hundred thousand they're probably in trouble. The income that the federal government has to work with is just under 20 percent of GDP. The debt is ballpark of 120, 130 percent of GDP, depending how you measure it, Uh, that's like the family with 100,000 income having 600,000 debt. But, there's hidden debt. There's uh, off-balance sheet spending and off-balance sheet debt. There's um, unacknowledged debt, the unfunded portion of Social Security and Medicare uh, and Medicaid are enormous, they dwarf the national debt. Include those, and you're looking at uh, hidden government debt that takes you to a percent of GDP as the income for the government to service that, those obligations. Uh, all right, well, that, that's more akin to uh, having $6 million of debt on $100,000 of income. Uh, What can't happen, won't happen. And so I don't worry about this. There will be a reset, and the reset can take any of a number of forms. Uh, uh, Default is theoretically possible, but why why default when you can do the backdoor default of reducing the real value of the debt? Inflation. Demographics then enters into the picture as a very slow moving, Macroeconomy and for uh, the capital, because 30 years, uh, an extraordinarily large roster of mature adults, the baby boom generation, uh, at a stage in life when they are valuation indifferent buyers of financial assets. What do I mean by that? Those who think ahead and are worried about their future uh, golden years are likely to be saying, I need to set aside money. And setting aside money uh, means you've got to put it into capital markets. And putting it into capital markets, you're not going to ask the question, is this too expensive or is this too cheap? Uh, Except perhaps on a tactical basis, you're going to set money aside. And this creates a dynamic that permits extreme. Roll the clock forward 20 years, uh, even 10 years, and you're looking at an environment where you, you have a an enormous roster, the largest ever, of valuation in different sellers. If you have assets set aside uh, and you want to convert those assets into goods and services during retirement. You're going to sell and you won't be somebody who can choose whether to sell based on whether it's expensive or not. The result is valuation in different sellers, rates go up, markets come down. And so I think we will have those headwinds over the coming 10 to 20 years. Uh, For people, that 3D hurricane is only a serious issue into a mindset today's economy is what things are going to look like for the next 20 years. For those with a more flexible mindset, all you have to do is boost your savings um, 10, 20 percent per year, um, uh, extend your expected work span by two or three years, and reduce your expected expenditures in retirement by 10 or 20 percent. And if you make that mental transition saying, I'm going to work a little longer, I'm going to save a little more, and I'll spend a little less in retirement. It all of a sudden becomes very manageable. Most people won't do that. And the economics profession and our policy elite are complicit in encouraging them not to think about the, those things.
0: Fantastic. Uh, I, I love that uh, 3D hurricane, uh, uh, deficits, national and, and, and uh, aging demographics. Uh, I, f- I feel like we're very much in the eye of that hurricane, or, uh, or, yeah. or, or maybe the, the eye, I guess, is more peaceful, but uh, I guess it's the edges that are, are the more. You know, uh, we know a lot about hurricanes in, uh, uh, in Miami, and you wrote this paper before you moved to Miami, or, or I arrived. did, I did. I
1: moved to Miami in two thousand eighteen when, uh, federal tax law made uh, state income tax no longer deductible,
0: so that, uh, my the state, state tax-,
1: tax burden went from seven percent to fourteen percent.
0: Well, fantastic. Well, you're not, not only are you predicting capital market returns, but you're also predicting your, your own future uh, location as well. It's uh, <laughs> fantastic. Um, I want to get more uh, a little bit into uh, the stock market specifically here. Um, and, and sort of, I know that you've had some pretty famous disagreements with Clip Asnes about a um, AQR of um, on the topic of market timing. And I think he's sort of a, the opinion that you can't really time the market well. And I, I think your opinion is, is, is somewhat different from that. Um, I'm curious, how should investors set their expectations for the future given where we're at now? Are there any sort of compelling bargains today for a long term patient investor? You know, the p 500 is down you know, 15% year to date. You know, we've been sort of in this range, you know, this year to date range of you know anywhere between 25%, 15% for a while. And I think there's some people out there that say, you know, now's a great time to get in if you have dry powder on the side, or maybe even if you're fully invested to lever up a little bit and take uh, you know a, a position that has like an equity market beta greater than one. Um, I'm curious, what do you think about this uh, kind of, uh, of reasoning um, yeah. around market timing? Do, do you think now is a good time to, uh, to lever up a little bit and, and get some more equity exposure to harness that long run risk premium?
1: Um, first, just a quick observation on the controversies with Cliff. Um, he and I agree on about 90 percent of everything and I think what's going on is he gets annoyed that we agree on so much that what we disagree on suddenly matters more to him than it ought to. Um, It is what it is. Uh, The paper that got him really angry was a paper uh, in 2016 called How Can Smart Beta Go Horribly Wrong? Now, the fundamental Index, which we invented back in 2004, was actually the original uh, inspiration for the label Smart Beta, which was coined by Towers Watson
0: back in 2007. This is the, these are the research affiliates fundamental indices, yes. which if you own a uh, equity fund at, at PIMCO or several other asset managers um, you're actually invested in exactly what Rob is telling you to be invested.
1: That's, that's our most of our hundred plus billion. Wow. Um, and the performance since 2016 for multi-factor was terrible. For fundamental index was terrible unless you correctly used a benchmark of value indexes. Uh, relative to value indexes, we did really, really well. Uh, uh, but... The essence of the paper was really simple. If you have a stock and its price has soared and its underlying fundamentals haven't, so its valuation multiples have soared, its past return will be brilliant. And if there's any mean reversion, its future return is going to disappoint. We said the same dynamic holds true for strategies and factors. The value factor, the spread in valuation between growth and value, widens and contracts. And uh, when it widens, you have rising relative valuation of growth and you have a lousy performance for the value factor, but it's a revaluation alpha. It's from the, al- from the valuation tumbling, not from the underlying fundamentals uh, softening. And what we observed was that every single factor and every single strategy out there goes through these cycles. People are drawn into strategies when they've performed well without doing the added homework of asking, did it perform well because it got more expensive or because it has structural benefits embedded in it? And uh, 2016, most factors were expensive. Value was the one outlier. in 2016, sure enough, value did well, Uh, low vol momentum quality did badly. Um, And so the point of the paper was um, when factor or strategy valuations are abnormally high, uh, you might want to go easy on using them. Uh, I would agree with Cliff that you don't want to make heroic huge bets on factors and, and strategies you want broad diversification, but just at the margin, if one factor is dirt cheap and the others are expensive, you want to tilt. Um, I'm working on a paper called That Was Then, This Is Now, which points out that the situation's changed. Most factors are trading cheap now. Most factors are trading abnormally cheap now. So the fact that multi-factor had a dismal five years, uh, is part of the reason that they're trading cheap now. And so while money was pouring into uh, factor and multi-factor and smart beta strategies in 2016, uh, at a time when the valuations for most of these factors was high, that's just common sense that, uh, that excuse me, that, that's just human nature. That people will pile into what's given them great joy and profit without necessarily thinking about did that profit come because of a structural advantage of the strategy or because it just got more expensive today we're in the opposite situation today money's pouring out of smart beta out of multi-factor and they're poised to perform beautifully the next five years
0: fantastic so factors are cheap
1: Investing, I think, is great. Value investing, I think, is great. Um, diversification outside the U.S., I think, is great. Uh, particular pockets of opportunity would be emerging markets value, uh, developed ex-U.S. value. If you got own U.S. stocks, make sure it's with a value tilt. And uh, in bonds, yields are still inadequate. Most of the world, except the emerging markets, where local currency debt is yielding more than U- than U.S. junk bonds, and those currencies are now cheap because the
0: dollar's been so remarkably strong. Fantastic. So, it'd be a good time to get in the market uh, if if you're not uh, a- already in it and uh, and tilting toward these sorts of factors. Um, I think that's a, a great, very compelling thesis to me, and perhaps the bottom isn't already so may want to act soon if you're, if you're totally well, in cash still.
1: I like to buy at a period of
0: peak fear.
1: I think in Europe we may be there. Uh, you have people um, terrified that good German citizens will freeze to death this winter because of uh, the difficulties getting uh, oil and natural gas at a time of great need. Um, there's a worry of the European economies cratering because the industries also need energy to function. Uh, Usually when you have elevated fear, the subsequent reality validates that fear, but but isn't as bad as the fear would have suggested. And so if it's not as bad, the narrative shifts and, oh, things are pretty bad, but not as bad as I feared, which means that the markets will rise handily. So I think the U.S. probably will have another leg down. Uh, This doesn't feel like peak fear. It doesn't feel like we've had a capitulation. Uh, Non-U.S. stocks, if U.S. stocks go another leg down, non-U.S. will test their lows. But if I'm wrong about uh, the U.S. having another leg down, uh, you want to be risk-on in the markets that are cheap. And so averaging in now, makes sense. Keeping some dry powder now makes sense. Uh, I'm often I'm often asked if you think there's another leg down, should I be getting out? My response is you should have been getting out a year ago. Uh, the market was a lot higher then. Now you should be thinking about entry points.
0: Fantastic. I know just yesterday the EU announced this new price cap on the Mm-hmm. On, uh, uh, on, on energy prices, yeah, very, very interesting to see. Um, it's very much how more... enforceable will that be? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's it's amazing just this perfect storm of a uh, war in uh, Ukraine at the same time as this you know, biggest inflationary burst uh, since the uh, 1980s. Uh, the, the timing the
1: is... latest NATO estimates are that Putin's killed 100,000 of his own citizens already,
0: uh, just by so, so sending them to, to be cannon fodder. So tragic. I mean, my, my thoughts and, and, and prayers are with everyone in, in, in Ukraine and, and affected by this conflict. I just want to get into, uh, shift here to uh, uh, tech. Because I, I know when we talk about value, I feel like you know, we're implicitly talking about growth. Mm-hmm. And usually when we're talking about growth, we're usually talking about tech these days. So, these days. Uh, these days at least, or at least the past decade. And so, um, I want to talk just a little bit about um, bubbles and 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 sort of what's been happening in the tech scene. There's been a lot of uh, announcement about tech layoffs recently. Um, something really, really haven't seen in over twenty years. It's, it seems like we're almost potentially at the end of this second tech bubble. Yes, uh, the last being in you know, the uh, ending in the early two uh, thousands. Um, we've had these acronyms over the past decade that, that I feel like have really emerged you know fangs Facebook Amazon Netflix Google um, like I'm curious uh, you're given that you know I mean some of these companies now you know Facebook Netflix have seen like 70% more sell-offs in their stocks mm-hmm. um, you know how do you think like you know how can one identify bubbles or in maybe anti-bubbles in real yeah. time is that a possible <clears> thing <like that? throat> this is a huge debate folks like uh, Robert Schiller I have a very certain uh, view on one side and, and I know uh, efficient market folks like uh, uh, Eugene Vama have a very different view on the other side. I'm curious um, what your thoughts are on the sort of behavioral economics and behavioral finance question of being able to identify bubbles.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> people bandy around the term bubble uh, very liberally, usually without defining their terms, and usually in retrospect, tech bubble dot-com bubble, 2000, fang bubble. I'm starting to hear people say fang bubble. Um, uh, In 2018, we thought, wouldn't it be nice if there's a workable definition for the term bubble that can be used in real time? We came up with one that I think makes good sense, and that is if you're using a standard valuation tool like discounted cash flow, you have to make implausible assumptions for the future growth in order to justify today's price. And as a quality check on that uh, part of the definition, the marginal buyer doesn't care about valuation models at all. And if you use that definition, then for quite some time, Fang stocks have been bubble stocks. Uh, I w- was debating um, uh, Kathy Woods uh, a year and a quarter ago at uh, uh big Morningstar conference and uh, at one point I briefly described that definition and I said, so given your fondness for Tesla, what, what justifies a $3,000 target price? Uh, in terms of actual future growth and she said it's going to grow 89% a year the next five years and then it'll be priced with today's fang stocks and I had been asked to play nice so (laughs) so I bit my tongue uh what I wanted to say is 89% growth for five years is 25-fold growth so you're saying Tesla will be 25 times as large in five years Amazon over the last 10 years has grown uh, 25 fold. You're saying it'll have, um, uh, excuse me, yeah, has grown uh, 12 fold. So you're saying that Tesla will have twice as much growth in half as many years as Amazon. Um, I bit my tongue and I said, well, that just sounds pretty implausible. Anything's possible, but that sounds implausible and let it go at that but uh, using that definition there's plenty of bubble stocks out there even now. So I view this as a deflating bubble much like the 2000 to 2003 unwind of the tech bubble.
0: Well I mean I I feel like uh, and I've watched some of that interview uh, with Kathy Wood from uh, from over a year ago I feel like very very prescient and uh, um, I mean, it's it's fascinating just to see this um, tech uh, collapse, and it, mm-hmm. it feels very much like the end of a bubble. To seeing uh, all these uh, issues you know, around uh, fraud and FTX, and I don't think yeah. it's quite a coincidence that uh, perhaps the you know, Enron scandal of the early 2000s sort of coincided with this, uh, uh, you know, the the end of the last tech bubble, and the, the fact yeah. that we see this these both frothiness and, and uh, sort of. Arguably fraudulent uh, things going on at the same time, uh, and, and crypto controversies and, and, and things of that nature. It's, it's interesting that the timing of these things yeah um, uh, seem to occur together and, and aren't uh, that, that's not in a way that's uh, coincidental. Um, you know, maybe mania sort of comes in and drives in a sense um, mm-hmm. sort of a behavioral <coughs> topic. So it, uh, we talked a little bit about growth and tech stocks. Let's get back to sort of the value uh, side of things here. Um, You know, the the idea that, you know, investors should invest like Warren Buffett finding good deals, uh, like stocks that are high, uh, high, you know, book to market values. Um, What gives you confidence in the long term prospects of of value investing? You know, value investing has had a a really difficult past, you know, 15 years or so uh, Mm -hmm. that I think has been humbling for a lot of value managers and a lot of quants. That um, are, are big into value investing. I mean, wh- what's the thinking and the evidence uh, behind your outlook? I think mm-hmm. you're very bullish on value, mm-hmm. um, and, and how have uh, I know you spoke a little bit of, uh, before about how value stocks have uh, have fared fairly well in uh, inflationary times? But say you know maybe we are and be able to get out of in inflation over the next you know few years or so, and the Fed is um, is effective in achieving that goal. Um, I'm curious like, what, what's driving your thesis behind um, value investing being a big winner in the coming years? Well firstly,
1: <clears throat> firstly, value has two main sources of alpha long term. Uh, one is what Fama and French call migration. <clears throat> Growth stocks, high valuation multiple companies. Uh, one or another of them falls out of favor drops off the list and is replaced with a new high flyer. So that means something with a more moderate valuation multiple is replaced with a higher valuation multiple company, which means that there's this constant with every rebalancing, there's less and less earnings, dividends, sales for every $100 you invest. The value side has the other opposite happen. Stocks percolate up out of value, come back into favor, and are replaced with new, unloved, deep value names. So you get this um, constant rebalancing out of companies that are no longer cheap into companies that are deeply cheap. And in so doing, you get more uh, earnings, dividends, uh, and book value for every $100 you invest with every rebalance. Now, this matters because growth stocks do grow faster than value stocks. that difference historically has been about 12-13% per annum. Pretty big. The migration effect has been about 18% per annum, enough to swamp that with room to spare. In addition to that, you have a yield difference, and so yield is an important part of returns for value stocks, and that yield kicker is real. So the advantages of value are structural, and uh, powerful. The disadvantage is that there's a cycle. It falls out of favor. We wrote a paper, uh, Reports of Values Death May Be Greatly Exaggerated, which came out at the beginning of 2021. Uh, And that paper won Graham and Dodd recognition as one of the two best papers of the year. So I was really pleased with that.
0: It's one of the biggest uh, finance uh, uh, Practitioner Journal uh, awards out there. Yeah, Graham, yeah. named after uh, uh, the two founders of value investing for the, the big Warren Buffett uh, mm-hmm. aficionados here. Yeah, it's actually uh, Ben Graham was Warren Buffett's uh, sort of professor at, at Columbia, and so it's the, yeah. the grandfather. There's a the grandfather of value investing.
1: Right. So in any event, um, in that paper we made two points: uh, one minor, one major. The minor one although it's not all that minor, is that book value is an antiquated measure of a company's assets. If I spend $1,000 on a desk, the book value of my company goes up a 1000 If I spend a million on R&D, it doesn't. And I wouldn't spend a million on R&D if I didn't think I was going to get it back in reasonably short order, uh, over, a let's say, a five-year span or something like that. So it turns out that if you use price-to-book value, if you just add in R&D to the book value and then amortize it out over 10 years, you have about twice as much efficacy as conventional price-to-book. So that was an interesting finding. The more important one was that value becomes cheap or expensive over time. And when it's expensive, it often doesn't perform very well. People are paying as much for value as they ought to, and are not pricing growth stocks at frothy extremes. Then you get to a point where values dirt cheap. Summer of 2020, the spread between growth and value was 13 to one on a price-to-book value basis. Um, peak of the tech bubble, it was 10 to one. The norm is five to one. Now. Uh, so we were saying we've just seen the most extreme relative valuation for value ever how much of it was because the value companies were doing badly none that wasn't a contributing factor at all the value companies were doing as well relative to growth as they historically normally have they were just out of favor people thought the narrative again uh, that The COVID lockdowns would lead to rolling bankruptcies across the macroeconomy. And those, of course, would be the value stocks. So a lot of these companies wouldn't exist. Well, trillions of stimulus made sure that didn't happen. Bankruptcies in 2020 were only modestly above 2019. Shockingly, little change. And as people began to realize that, the value cycle turned. People stopped pricing value stocks as an option on their future survival and started pricing them as going concerns. That's all it took to have that first massive leg up. So uh, I'm a believer in value structurally because of the migration effect and the yield difference. I'm a believer in value when value is cheap, which it was extremely cheap summer of 2020. Um, here's Here's a fun factoid. Russell value underperformed Russell growth by 4,000 basis points in the first eight months of this decade. It's now within um, uh, within 2% per annum of being in the black decade to date. To recover 4,000 basis point drop, you got to outperform by 6,700 basis points. We're almost there. And the Fama-French value factor is already in the black decade to date and fundamental index is already ahead of the cap weighted markets decade to date so when things change they can change very fast Uh, i'm often asked is it did i miss my opportunity is it too late And my answer is for now no it's not too late because the gap between growth and value while it's come in considerably is still in the cheapest quintile ever and there's still 4,000 basis points needed for value to recover relative to growth, in order to bring, just get back to historic
0: norms. 4,000 basis points is
1: worth making the trade.
0: Well, well, I, I know that you know, despite there's this you know not so great period for value, and you know starting maybe from uh, around the time of the global financial crisis to um, just 20 you know 2021. Uh, I know this year. Uh, especially early in the year was just a huge rebound for value and uh, I, I think uh, that may uh, uh, both particularly well in, in an inflationary environment for the reasons mm-hmm. you've outlined it's very interesting to hear your uh, your thesis and, and thinking behind um, the, why, um, why value investing is great prospects in in the long run sure so I want to uh, pivot um, next to a little bit more toward uh, uh, your your business and and, and kind of what Makes research affiliates different from even other quantitative investment yeah. managers, and in that you're all about ind- indexing and creating um, thoughtful um, indices. And, and what I think is so interesting is, you know, we've seen this massive shift over the past really 40, 50 years in investment management away from active management toward passive management, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we have, we have things like uh, index funds and ETFs now. What I think is so interesting about your business is that Um, you have a a slightly different take on the pure market cap weights of, of, say, the uh, BlackRocks and Vanguards out there that are just weighing every stock by their their market capitalization weight. And and you're using things like um, value weights and accounting and book value uh, type weights. And I think that's a very different way to try and capture uh, value than, say, um, traditional you know, say hedge fund, equity, long short, stock pickers who are you know, picking value names that mm-hmm. they like. It's very different, and and also just from a, a uh, in a format and uh, uh, perspective, you're able to offer um, your investment products through things like ETFs, uh, in index funds. I'm curious, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, what do you think is you know right about index investing in in general, investing through you know, ETFs uh, rather than sort of do it. know at home yourself finding Mm. value names in the newspaper and and so forth or Mm. or doing your own homework Um, and and what do you think are some of the also you know underappreciated travails that you know indexers may face and what do you think uh, what ideas going forward might improve index fund management going forward
1: absolutely well firstly two answers to your question each of which deserves some discussion one is raffi versus cap weight and the other is can you do cap weight better Uh, Let's take the first one
0: first. And Rafi is Research Affiliates Fundamental Indexing.
1: Correct. Uh, Fundamental Index basically means you look at each company and you ask, what are its sales as a percentage of all publicly traded companies? What are its profits as a percentage of all publicly traded companies? What are its dividends plus buybacks as a percentage of all publicly traded companies? What's its book value? plus intangibles, uh, R&D, as a percentage of all publicly traded businesses. So ExxonMobil might be um, 2% of all uh, sales, and 2.5% of all profits, and 2% of all book value, and uh, uh, 1.5% of all dividends plus buybacks. You can argue endlessly about whether it's one and a half, two, 2 or 2.5% of the economy. Or you could just take an average of those. And if you take an average of those, you get a crude approximate measure of the footprint the company has in the macroeconomy. Our footprint on the beach has multiple measures, length, width, depth of the footprint. Same thing can be said about companies in the macroeconomy.
0: 3D footprint, like the 3D hurricane.
1: Yes, yes, except this is 4D because we're using four measure. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) um, if... um, if you weight companies by their fundamental footprint, a growth stock will be reweighted down to its economic footprint. A value company will be reweighted up to its economic footprint. And the market loves the growth stocks, pays a premium, hates the value stocks, prices them at a discount. The market is shockingly prescient in determining which companies deserve a premium multiple and which don't. There's a 50% correlation between the premium paid for a stock and its subsequent future growth. Uh, That's cool, except the market overpays for these and underpays for these. So there's a minus 50% correlation between the premium that's paid and the subsequent IRR of the stock. So the market does a good job of picking the companies and a lousy job of picking the same stocks. The, um, The implication of that is the value tilt of fundamental index is structural and large. The average value tilt is very similar to that of the value indexes. It differs from the value indexes because it includes the growth stocks. It includes the value stocks. and the deep value, it overweights a lot, and the extreme growth, it underweights a lot. It also contratrades against the market's constantly changing opinion. So as the market is changing its mind on what a company is worth, you're going to contra-trade against those largest moves unless they're ratified by changes in the underlying fundamentals. Now, what this means is that you have a rebalancing alpha, a value tilt alpha, and an index, an index that studiously mirrors the look and composition of the macro economy, much like cap weighting mirrors the look and composition of the stock market itself, because it is cap weighted. So when we first thought of this idea in 2003 and tested it, we first did it with book value and with sales, um, both of which more or less can't go negative. Um, and by using those measures, we found that over the prior 30 years, um, choosing the companies by fundamental size of the business and weighting them by fundamental size of the business would give you historically a 2.5% alpha Interesting per annum. Uh, 1% of that came from the value tilt, one5 from the rebalancing alpha. Uh, two and a half, that's a lot. Yeah. Now, since we went live, values underperformed. But we've continued to beat the value indexes by about 1.5% a year, uh, two in the more volatile markets like emerging markets and small companies. Um, And that's been persistent. Uh, Seven out of 10 years we win. Uh, Eight out of every 10 three year spans we win. 95% of all five year spans we win relative to the value indexes. So it's, it's, it's a powerful concept. But I like to think of it as indexing to mirror the look and composition of the economy So you have an economy weighted index and you have a market weighted index. Both represent perfectly reasonable core holdings. Now, that brings us to the second issue. Can cap weighting be smarter? Cap weighting has two Achilles heels, one which Rafi addresses. Um, Cap weighting guarantees that any stock that's above its future value, future fair value, is weighted too heavily. The majority of your holdings will be in overvalued companies. Minority will be in undervalued companies. RAFI fixes that not by knowing what the fair value is, but by randomizing the errors. A stock that's big in RAFI could be over or underpriced. The errors cancel instead of being systematically overweight the overvalued and underweight the undervalued. The second Achilles heel of cap weighting is the way they add and delete stocks. Stocks are added because they've soared. They're dropped because they've tanked. And so you're magnifying that effect of overweighting the overvalued by adding stocks when they're extravagantly expensive. Uh, We went back historically and found that stocks that were added were quite literally at four times the valuation multiples of the stocks that were dropped. What if you neutralize that? You can do that in a lot of ways. You can do that by um, not adding a stock until it has, uh, let's take S&P 500, until it's been in the top 500 for three years back to back. Okay, by then it's no longer necessarily on a tear. Uh, And you'll have missed turnarounds, companies that soared and crashed. Don't drop a company until it's been out of the top 500 for three years back to back. Uh, It will no longer be in free fall. And you'll not have dropped companies that cratered and bounced back. So you reduce the turnover. You reduce the sensitivity to price on your additions and deletions. And oh, by the way, even though you're still cap waiting, even though Tesla's still one of your five largest holdings, You add 50 to 60 basis points per annum to conventional cap-weighted indexes because you're not chasing the latest frothy fad and fleeing the latest uh, unloved stock. So we're coming out with a paper. I hope FAJ will accept it, uh, should hear in a few uh, days or weeks, in which we basically say, hey, indexers, Get smart about how you add and delete stocks. You can make a better index and give your customers a better experience. And if they won't, we will.
0: I like that. So we're going to open it up uh, to questions now. Um, I think we're going to um, uh, pass around uh, a microphone. Um, If um, you could state your name uh, and and, uh, a brief question, um, uh, more of a, a more uh, questions than comments are preferred, but also understand that um, folks need um, some background as well. I think uh, we have a question from uh, Greg over here. Um, You'd like to? Thanks, John. And uh, Rob, thank, thank you again for being here. My name is Greg Ferrero. Um, so there's a little bit of a debate going on right now to where the Fed's going and uh, how high they're going to raise rates until they get to what they call the mm-hmm. rate, uh, and then how long they're going to raise rates up. Um, my question to you would be: If you were chairman of the Fed, and based on what you said earlier about inflation and how you think you, you know, how you've studied it in the past, um, what do you think you would do in terms of how high you raise the rate and how long you keep it there? And what tends to be more effective in fighting inflation: is it going higher in the shorter term, or is it going up to a more maybe more moderate level to keep? So, so I think just to repeat the question, I think the, the, uh, the question is, um, uh, if you were chairman of the Fed, What would I do? What would you do? <laughs> I, I think that's, yeah. Keynes um, believed that
1: during the good times, you run surpluses and get the debt reduced. Um, he'd be shunned. Um, so a fellow named Ian McDougall was wandering the countryside in, in, in Scotland up to a local and says, how do I get from here to Inverness? And the local says, well, if I were you, I wouldn't start here. You don't start with a decade of free money. That was a catastrophic mistake and a catastrophically failed experiment. We're going to be paying the the piper for that for two, three decades to come. they claim to be data dependent but the data that they focus on uh, changes from one meeting to the next it's whatever is the latest uh, hot data point that they find interesting the data point that they pay no attention to that should be the central and most important data point that they look at is the long bond yield long bond yield is still set by the market it's not set by the fed and the long bond yield tells tells all of us what a market clearing price is for those who want to borrow at a risk-free rate, for those who are truly risk-free borrowers, or for those who want to defer consumption and get paid for it by deferring consumption by uh, uh, providing capital. And viewed from that perspective, the idiocy of negative real rates becomes self-evident. Why should they pay attention to that? Um, Cam Harvey is an advisor to our firm. He was the first to notice that an inverted yield curve predicts a recession. He published it in his uh, 1988 PhD dissertation. Um, And I would argue that an inverted yield curve doesn't predict a recession, it creates one. Because what you're doing is saying to those who are willing to defer consumption, Defer consumption for a long time, you're going to get paid less than deferring consumption for a short time. Or conversely, if you're a borrower, uh, you want to borrow money long term, we'll charge you less than if you want to borrow money short term, which means shut down new initiatives that are remotely questionable. Um, The result is that whenever the yield curve inverts, uh, growth is stifled. Now, to a person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. The inflation is caused by elevated demand, diminished supply. Fed can do nothing about supply. So their view is, and they're very explicit about this, crush the demand until it equals the supply. All right, what does crushing the demand look like? A recession. Australia was called the lucky country because for 30 years it had no recessions. What was the central bank policy during most of those 30 years? Was to have short-term rates pegged, whether deliberately or just by happenstance, at about one to 2% below the long rate. And they had no recessions. And they grew from uh, being half the per capita GDP of the US to being about 80% the per capita GDP of the US. Cool. So I think um, if I were chairman of the Fed, I would uh, set the Fed funds rate at 1% below the long yield, adjusted every meeting to keep it about 1% below the long rate, and go spend time with my family.
0: Uh, so uh, just to, I guess, uh, follow up on, on that, um, do you think like a soft landing is possible? That we could, you know, potentially, you know, I guess that the Fed is if saw, the Fed If the, the Fed is, is- That if we the, wouldn't have, potentially wouldn't have a Fed-induced recession.
1: If the Fed is uh, not determined to crush demand, excuse yeah. If it's not determined to crush demand, then yeah, we could have a soft landing. But they are determined to crush demand. So I think the likelihood of a soft landing is uh, remote. I think um, we're in the early stages of a recession. If you look at at GDP growth, we had two negative GDP prints in a row. That used to be defined as a recession. Uh, They changed the definition of recession to, say, falling GDP and rising unemployment. When you have two job openings for every job seeker, uh, rising unemployment is difficult. But they're going to do it. They're going to make sure it happens, and uh, with that determination, it creates very high likelihood that we have a recession next year. It doesn't have to be a bad recession. It doesn't have to be a deep recession, but it's very highly likely that we have a recession, and businesses have to act accordingly.
0: Well, it's uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating, and there's like I think in general, like it you know, the, says the, 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 there's sort of three different causes of recessions. Uh, over the past hundred years, the three most popular causes have, have been uh, pandemics, uh, uh, financial asset bubbles like the tech bubble or housing uh, crisis of uh, 2008. And then I think the most popular one, I think people tend to forget this, is actually you know, Fed induced or, or central bank induced recessions. And, and these are, I, I guess, coming back in vogue now that we have inflation back. Well, it's very interesting to know what a, uh, a, a potentially future Fed chair uh Arnott would do. Um, it's never going to happen. <laughs> well, yeah. A lot of people said the same thing about a President Trump, and, uh, and uh, I'm uh, not sure, so... Okay, um, well, let's not go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not, not a wise I comment. I liked his
1: policies, but I thought he was, uh, I think he's a lousy
0: human being. Th- this will be Rob's last interview with the <laughs> Miami. Um, uh, uh, we've got a question here from Adam. Yeah. Feel free to, yeah, just okay. shoot it.
2: Um, so we wait- just come to the end of a 30-year period of massive disinflationary macro trends, so mm-hmm. globalisation, outsourcing, technology impact, that has basically come to an end. Globalisation has ended, outsourcing has ended, or it's now at a static level. So going forward, and that's bought, and we've seen at the same time in interest rates coming down systematically throughout mm-hmm. that 30-year period. So. What is going forward, what do you think is is like stable state or the equilibrium 10 year yield, And what is the corresponding equilibrium PE multiple for the S&P 500 as a result, because they should be related to one another, right? So uh, it's been 17 and a half times over that period, should that contract? 15 and a half
0: times on the forward basis. So, so just to repeat the question yeah. for our friends online in the microphone here, uh, the question is, uh, or the, the comment is, uh, globalization seems to have ended, what is the long-term uh, equilibrium uh, 10-year uh, yield and PE ratio? Um, let's, start,
1: let's start with uh, real yields because the uh, 10-year yield will be real yield plus 10-year expected inflation. Let's assume that the economics profession consensus settles in at 2, 2.5% two inflation. Um, I don't think a break-even inflation rate of 2, 2.3 today makes any sense at all. But five years from now, hopefully it does. Uh, I wish they would aim for price stability meaning zero inflation but that's an outlier view. it's very out of favor these days. Um, so if inflation is in the two to three percent range and the real yield is in the one to one and a half percent range, then you're looking at let's say about a four percent yield right about where it is now. Um, so that's a good end point. If you have 2% real yields on treasury bonds, then a valuation multiple, I don't like using PE. I like using CAPE, uh, the price relative to 10-year smoothed earnings, because PE, based on trailing earnings, is uh, often extraordinarily high just because earnings are depressed or extraordinarily low because earnings are peak earnings. So the 17 times that you're alluding to is 17 times peak earnings. Um, The CAPE ratio right now is about 30. And historically, when you get real yields of around 1% to 2%, you find that uh, the natural CAPE ratio is pretty good. It's about 20 times. Well, that's a third off from today. And so I think uh, yields, the Fed will push rates higher. So Treasury yields will rise from current levels, uh, though not necessarily very much and not necessarily very long. Uh, But the eventual equilibrium level would be not dissimilar to today. Equity valuations would be lower, and uh, real yields would be In the one and a half range. Um, What that means is that we're not that far from equilibrium except on equity valuations, uh, with the important caveat that between now and then the Fed is determined to create a recession.
2: So get used to 6% mortgage rates.
1: Yeah. Which makes sense on a long-term basis um, blowing housing bubbles by creating an environment of 2.5% mortgage rates. Uh, really doesn't make good
0: macroeconomic sense. Uh, Getting used to 6% mortgage rates uh, sounds horrifying to a, a young prospective home buyer um, uh, g- going forward, but uh, I, I agree with you. Yeah, but maybe we've been in this period of, of 0% interest rates for, for so long that we've all become so accustomed to it.
1: Exactly. It was aberrantly
0: low rates. Uh, do you have any more questions uh, up front, the uh, gentleman up front? And please and please, uh, and, and please uh, speak loudly if you can.
2: Yeah, okay. Yep. So my name is David Gonzalez. Thank you for the mm-hmm. call. Uh, from your comments, it would seem like a stagflation scenario is mm-hmm. very
1: likely in your view. You could expand a little bit on that, and also, what are your thoughts on China for the next decade or so and oh. on the demographic challenges you comment on that? That can come That sounds like about an
0: hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so a, the, the questions, thoughts, uh, thoughts on uh, inflation and uh, and on China. Okay. okay. safe sorry. Save, uh, thoughts on of stagflation, so uh, you know, GDP contracting, the economy contracting, and inflation at the same time, uh, and um, and what Rob thinks about China?
1: Well, firstly, our, our work on inflation suggests that there's reasonably good odds that the burst of inflation we've had is only the start of an inflationary episode, not the end of it. Um, there's a 20% chance that it recedes over the next two years. Uh, Uh, But there's also a 20% chance that it lasts a decade or more. Uh, I don't like those odds. That sounds like a formula for stagflation. Um, If we wind up with a short, mild recession and the Fed backs off and Fed funds are back down to 3 and the 10 years back at 4 and equity valuations are... um, uh, a healthy multiple, but not a lofty multiple, then we can enter um, a period of relative tranquility. But I would say stagflation is kind of the 30% bad news case. Um, With Fed ineptitude, it's not unlikely. And the Goldilocks scenario is a 20 or 30% uh, benign case, <clears throat> in which case you really want to be getting back invested outside the US in particular. Now, not wait. The um, China question, uh, I feel for the people in China that you've got an autocrat at the top. Um, he's uh, unreconstructed Maoist. Uh, he. Believes in absolute control. Uh, his um, having Hu Jintao, his predecessor, um, uh, marched off at the end of the party congress uh, suggests how far he's willing to take things. Um, uh, the zero COVID policy uh, I'm sorry, everyone in China will be exposed to COVID. It's going to happen. Show of hands, how many people in this room think that they have had COVID or know that they have had COVID? Okay, that's about 80 uh, percent. I'm guessing half of the rest of you did but didn't have any symptoms.
2: <laughs>
1: My wife's had it twice, no symptoms either time. She was tested because of travel in both cases and found, oh I have COVID. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Zero-COVID policy is stupid from the get-go. It's going to spread. You want to protect the vulnerable and just recognize that everyone's going to get it. Let's not blow up the economy over this. Um, In China, isn't it interesting how every time there's uh, a massive protest, they find a COVID case somewhere nearby and lock them down? It's about control. It's not about COVID. It's about punishing enemies. It's not about COVID. And so um, I hope China has more enlightened leadership within the next decade. Uh, uh, The current leadership is
0: scary. Any other uh, questions uh, from the audience? Um, We've got one from Michael. Uh, Yep, we can hear you. So, so to repeat the question, I, I think the question is how uh how do uh how does neoclassical and Keynesian sort of thinking uh around economics and, and uh to some degree uh that that influence on investing? Um how does that work in an era of MMT uh modern monetary theory seemingly inspired uh what uh,
1: MMT work <laughs>
0: so Got it. So, I, I think the, the question is living in a paradigm where sort of uh, economic policy is sort of shifted away from uh, sort of neoclassical long term structural growth, you know, pro growth policy, or um, you know, demand um, you know, management, Keynesian demand management, but where you're running deficits in bad times and surpluses in good times, you know, maybe like in the 90s and the you know, Clinton era. Um, what, um, how, how does shifting away from those traditional paradigms um, to one where we're just always running deficits and, and uh, presumably always um, having very accommodative uh, monetary policy um, that's maybe changed a little bit recently, um, how does that, that sort of regime shift weigh on investing going forward?
1: Um, <clears throat> I view geopolitical shocks, stupid policies, Uh, which is another form of shock uh, as a means by which mispricing is introduced into the markets and those willing to contra trade against them will usually win, though it can take a while. Uh, So MMT, one of the premises of MMT is when you do start to see inflation you'd better raise your taxes to rein in inflation. And um, that's an area where I would actually agree with the MMT crowd that that if you are determined to keep spending, and you've got inflation, and you're not willing to cut spending, um, that you have to raise taxes. Or as Milton Friedman famously said, the correct measure of the level of taxes is the level of spending. Because if it's not, what it does for the investor is create disruption and dislocations. So you get a uh, stupid policy leading to zero interest rates for multiple years, uh, betting on rates normalizing upward uh, eventually wins and did win. Um, betting on equity valuations faltering wins and did win Uh, and so geopolitical shocks likewise create opportunity and so i i I would say be nimble look for opportunities and when you see a shock uh, ask the question uh, is this still going to matter in five years is COVID still going to matter in five years? No, COVID will still be around. Uh, it's endemic, not pandemic. But while COVID's not done with us, we're done with COVID as as a driver of
0: policy. Um, we have a question from uh, Rodolfo here. Um, would you mind uh, saying up, um, seeing your name and? Uh, yes, my name is Rodolfo Milani, and uh, I just have a question about energy stocks. Mm-hmm. there's no question that 12 to 18 months ago many of these stocks were definitely in the value camp uh now with the, many of them having doubled or tripled i mean they still may have low PEs and they still may have decent dividends i mean is an exxon or a chevron still a value stock to you after the kinds of move that they've had so the, the question <laughs> is energy stocks which Uh, not so long ago were thought of as as value stocks with the recent uh, run-up that they've had, should they still be considered value stocks uh, or maybe should they be thought more of as as, uh, growth stocks?
1: I view them still in the value camp. Um, uh, Firstly, I'm a believer in global warming and climate change. I'm a believer that it's human generated. I'm also a believer that it will change the world very gradually that it will take a long time. I've been asked why did you buy a house on the water in Miami Beach and my response is I'm eight feet above high water mark uh, uh, or high high tide mark uh, and with sea levels rising about one inch every five years as is the current apparent pace I may have to move in the next 150 years. Um, It's gonna take time. And those who want to deal with it with multi-trillion dollar transfers and with multi-trillion dollar spending programs, um, they're overlooking a very important reality, and that is uh, uh, fossil fuels are currently, for now, and for at least two or three generations to come, central to a well-functioning global economy. Uh, 83% of energy used worldwide is from fossil fuels. The most optimistic projection I've seen is that that drops to 60% by mid-century. But the 60% is on a larger global economy, so the actual extraction of fossil fuels in mid-century would be the same as it is today. Um, at PIMCO Secular Forum, um, they, they had a um, climate person speak, uh, and he was le- more moderate than most. Um, but I asked him the question, if this is the trajectory for fossil fuel consumption without collapsing the global economy, how do you get to zero fossil f- fuel use by mid-century? And he didn't have an answer. So you don't without killing the world economy, killing billions of people, and creating a world war unlike any we've seen in the past. Uh, I view this as just an is. We have no choice. We're gonna continue using fossil fuels for uh, decades to come. In that context, yes, these stocks are still value stocks. No, they don't have stranded assets. The assets will be used. Um, And I'm also a big believer in technology, that technology, we will find technological solutions to global warming in the coming century. Look at how the world is different today from 100 years ago. It is breathtaking. It is people 100 years ago could not imagine many elements of our current life. Um, the notion of asking Siri uh, your probing question uh, and having this little handheld thing tell you the answer. Uh,
0: well, uh, commercial air travel or air conditioning too, <laughs> <laughs> I think, are, are two, yeah, absolutely. two of my favorites uh, so, have two, uh, 100 years ago.
1: So, um, at the end of this century, uh, I'm a believer and this is based on zero knowledge of what technologies will be developed, I'm a believer that technology will answer the, the climate change problem, but it'll take generations,
0: not decades. Um, you have one, I, uh, one last question um, from the gentleman over here. Jose Torres, Interactive Brokers. Uh, one thing that Fed talks a lot about is long-term inflation expectations remaining anchored. At what point do you think inflation expectations become unanchored? So the uh, the question is: At what point um, do you think that uh, inflation expectations will become re-anchored? Unanchored. Unanchored. Okay. Aren't um, they kind of un- aren't they kind of somewhat unanchored right now? Long-term.
1: No, they're very anchored. They, oh, oh,
0: sorry. Long term. Okay, sorry. Yeah, break-even
1: at, inflation rates are still two point three percent. Yes. Sorry. And, the, the the question um, is: At
0: what point will inflation, will long-term inflation expectations become unanchored?
1: I I think BEI. Uh, very high odds can't stay below three, and, well, until this inflation cycle winds down. Break even in inflation. Break even inflation. At the ten-year, thirty. That's the ten-year. Okay. Uh, and if I'm right about that, I would say we've got eighty-twenty odds that a bet that uh, inflation expectations become less anchored—I wouldn't say unanchored—less anchored in the coming year is highly likely.
0: Okay. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, If you could please give Rob a round of applause.